Welcome to Spin It On Sports, where we take a look at athletes that have found a way to spin life in their direction. We explore their personal journeys, taking a closer look into how they've pivoted their career as a professional athlete or coach into another existence. Whether it be entrepreneurship, philanthropy, technology, coaching, ownership, leadership, or finding ways to give back to the next generation, these acclaimed individuals have leveraged invaluable lessons learned from their playing or coaching days and are now making a positive impact and serve as an inspiration to many. Spin It On Sports provides a raw and unfiltered platform to bring you their stories of perseverance, overcoming obstacles, and the keys to their newfound success. Today we have Anson Dorrance with us in the studio. Anson is the University of North Carolina's women's head soccer coach. He's been coaching at UNC since 1979 and has over 1,043 NCAA wins, 22 national titles, and over a 90% win percentage, making him one of the best coaches in all of sports. In 2009, Dorrance became the first coach in NCAA history to win 20 championships coaching a single sport and has one of the most successful coaching records in the history of athletics. In addition to his college coaching career, Anson also coached the U.S. women's national team in 1986, coaching the likes of Karen Jennings and Mia Hamm. In 1991, Anson led the U.S. to a 2-1 win over Norway, claiming the first ever Women's World Cup championship. After years of success, Anson was inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame in 2008. Today, we get to talk with Anson about his incredible legacy, how he and his team continue to perform at such a high level, the challenges he faced along the way, and how important culture and great leadership is when it comes to coaching both the game of soccer and life. So Anson, you're hailed as simply an amazing leader. Every single person that I've talked to since I've been in North Carolina, when your name comes up, they get this glow, they get this smile. They get so happy to tell me a little story or a little anecdote. And I think it's so amazing the track record that you've created. You know, it's not a five or 10 year track record. It's so long that you've been this amazing leader. What do you think makes you the best leader that you are? Well, I think uh, uh, what's certainly benefited me are so many different factors. I mean, uh, let's not ignore luck. I ended up in this position with absolutely sheer luck. My dad was an oil exec, and uh, when he sent me to college, he wanted me to end up going to law school to be his corporate attorney. The family joke at the time is at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. So that was my dad. And, and uh, I love my dad. I was a dutiful son. I had no issue with going to law school because he thought it was best. I respected him. And then I was married at the time when I was admitted to law school. I was trying to figure out a way to contribute to the family income. Uh, my wife was a professional dancer. And when she moved here, uh, she had no issue hooking up with uh, uh, local, you know, teaching platforms. And so her income stream was was excellent. Uh, even initially, when we got married, I wasn't really uh, making that much. Uh, and all of a sudden, I was given this opportunity to coach the men's team part time, while I was a law student, and uh, I was, I wanted to contribute. So I basically started coaching the men here. And then our athletic director here at the time was a visionary. His name is Bill Kobe, and uh, there was a women's soccer club on campus that was petitioning for varsity status. And he called me up one day and he said, Anson, uh, the uh, club wants us to look at them. They're petitioning for varsity status. I need your opinion. Can you meet me at this field, which coincidentally was right underneath the law library 
uh, law school library. And uh, we went out there and he asked me uh, after I had watched them for a while, you know, well, Anson, what do you think? And I said, you know, uh, Mr. Kobe, this is a, a wonderful team. They're organized, they're committed. And I was sort of shilling for the coach saying, you know, yes, we should make this team a varsity. And, and I basically gave the coach full credit thinking that we would hire him uh, part-time to coach the women. And then he said, well, Anson, if you will coach both teams, the men and the women will take this part-time position and we'll make it uh, uh, full-time. And uh, I had no issue with that. And then all of a sudden, I'm trying to finish a law degree and coach two teams, and it was overwhelming. And finally, I came home one day, and I said, honey, uh, you know, this uh, law school thing, uh, I just, uh, I don't think that's me. I think um, I really enjoy this coaching stuff. So for me, it was extraordinarily lucky for me to end up uh, basically coaching boys I had played with at UNC uh, because the coach I played for retired and recommended to Mr. Kobe that he hire me to replace him. And then a women's team rolled around at the perfect time to make this part-time men's gig full-time. And, and all of a sudden I have landed in coaching heaven because I went from coaching rainbow soccer, a co-educational rec league in Chapel Hill, boys and girls to the top of division one, which is a ridiculous ascension. And uh, for me, it was just extraordinary. And I ended up loving it. I do love people, uh, and this is sort of uh, counterintuitive. I'm an introvert, uh, but I do love people. And as a result, I think that's a critical element of, if you do want to enter the coaching profession is to you know, like being around people, you know, like motivating people. So for me, um, this was a, you know, a marriage made in heaven, me and coaching these two teams. And I did that for uh, 10 years together. Uh, and then uh, since uh, 89, uh, just the women, and so I've been extraordinarily lucky, and I had a chance to pioneer my sport, because back in the day, uh, we were the first women's varsity in the South when uh, Mr. Kobe decided to establish this varsity. And so we had a nice sort of head start on a lot of programs, and with that head start, I didn't want to give it up. Uh, so we've tried to stay you know, in front for as long as we could. Uh, so for me, there's certainly a lot of luck involved in this, but I think an element to answer your question is, I think... Uh, You've got to you know, love the people you're, in my case, coaching or teaching or leading. And I think if that's an element in who you are, I think that's going to help you uh, get to a position of trust, which I think is the most critical element in leading. Do you find that people are shocked to learn that you're an introvert when they actually do get to know you a little better? I, too, am an introvert and nobody believes it the energy and the amount of capacity it takes to actively engage. I, too, enjoy people the right people, but I too enjoy people, but do, are people shocked by that? Uh, yeah, they are. And actually I was shocked when I learned I was an introvert because the way I learned it is time magazine came out with this wonderful article and they had 20 questions yes. to sort out if you were an introvert. And so I just took this 20 question test to sort it out, you know, just being absolutely convinced I was an extrovert because I have no issue getting up in front of people and speaking. So that's not a personal problem. I'm extraordinarily confident. So it's not like, you know, I'm a wallflower and shy. So I never thought I was the least bit introverted. And all of a sudden, out of the 20 questions that they asked me in this Time Magazine article, I answered 18 like an introvert. And so I'm not just not a, an ordinary introvert. I'm radically introverted. I would rather read books and go to a party. Yes. I would rather I would rather escape a party immediately. In other words, as soon as the party begins, uh, the only silver lining on my wife's illness when she got sick uh, 
uh, years ago in uh, uh, 2012 was if I was at a party, everyone knows, you know, the health conditions uh, that my wife struggles with. And I would walk up to them after, you know, five or 10 minutes at this party and say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, thank you for inviting us, but uh, we're leaving. And, oh, Anson, we completely understand. And so, and they all thought it was because Melissa wanted to leave. No, Melissa didn't want to leave. I wanted to leave. <laughs> right. Uh, right. But obviously, Melissa's uh, in the car going, thanks. Thanks so much. Yes. Oh, exactly right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so yes, uh, I learned just from that article in a Time magazine that uh, I'm not just in introverted, I'm radically introverted. Yeah, I had the same experience. I, I took that same test. It was 21 questions, actually, and I was at 19. Um, okay, I actually, there you go. So I even took it again. <laughs> and then I started, I started going, gosh, am I Am I actually answering this appropriately? And, you know, I checked in with a couple of people and they're like, yes, you, I mean, I will do it. I don't have any confidence issues. I'll speak, you know, I speak all the time, but I'd prefer to be home and I'd prefer to be reading, maybe having a glass of wine, cooking at home, being here, um, opposed to being out there and in front of the limelight and, and taking any attention. I just really prefer the, the back road. <laughs> No, and I'm with you in the uh, area where my wife struggles with me is, of course, I, I talk all day. Right. And so when I come home, what happens? I am shutting down. And Absolutely. So, and then I am exhausted from basically, uh, we call it performing. Uh, so um, my wife uh, uh, thinks this is hilarious. She'll, uh, you know, we'll go out to dinner with friends or something. And then, of course, yeah, I am entertaining them and then at the end of the evening i am so drained from performing and none of that is who i was or am uh, and then i get home and uh, melissa just sees me completely shut down and it drives her crazy because she wants to continue to to talk and of course uh, i'm exhausted you're done yeah so yeah. that's actually really amazing that you brought that up because a lot of the times when i'm coaching executives or even coaches, I'm coaching coaches on, on connection and on empathy and compassion and things like this, their wives or, or conversely, their husbands say, it's so hard for me to actually watch them because I don't get that at home. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see that at home and I see how connected and I see how lit up he or she is. And then when he get they get home or she gets home or he gets home, they're on the couch. They're, they're not connecting. They're quiet. And, and it's very difficult for spouses. No, and um, I understand that. I have huge empathy for my wife who has to put up uh, with all this. Um, but it's really interesting. My first roommate uh, before my wife was my younger brother, Pete. And Pete understands this fully because uh, 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 a biographer uh, uh, that sort of told my life story is a gentleman by the name of Tim Carruthers. And he interviewed my brother. And my brother's an answer was great. My, my brother understood it completely. And I can't uh, uh, remember how he describes it anymore, but he basically said something to the effect of, yep, uh, Anson needs what he called, I guess, quiet time yeah. or alone time. And this is my brother. His bed is right next to mine. And my brother knows periodically, I am just, I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to grab a book. I don't want any interruptions. And that's it. And he gets it. And uh, even to this day, uh, he's an extraordinarily close friend of mine, and he gets it. So he can come to dinner with me. We can sit there and not say a word together. But this brother of mine is in the restaurant business, and he understands it fully. So holy cow, when I go out to celebrate any event, and my wife asks me, well, who do you want to bring? I, I want to bring my brother and his wife, because here's what uh, I know, and he knows. Uh, there might be a stretch where I've decided to sign off. Right. And, Disconnect. Uh, 
That's correct. And he gets it. And I am forgiven for it. Because uh, obviously, if you're there with other people, uh, they don't understand, uh, you know, why you're so quiet. Even sometimes take offense. Even sometimes. No, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, because they see you out. You know, that was my thing. I would go to meetings. And so I'd be meeting with, you know, big, big, you know, United and LinkedIn and Groupon and all these. And, and I had meetings from five in the morning until 11 o'clock at night, breakfast meetings, coffee meetings, lunch meetings, board meetings, dinner meetings. And then I would come home and I would just shut down. No meetings, no conference calls, no speaking, no engaging. And I, my kids would come in and be, ask me a question. I would answer them and I would go about my business and they'd be like, great, good talk. Like, <laughs> I mean, they were just like, what did I do? And I had to refocus and recenter and explain how much it took for me to, to be on and to give at that level. And I, I see you doing that when I've heard you speak. It's just tremendous. Well, I think you've described it well, uh, being on. Uh, my wife understands this because that uh, requires extraordinary yes. energy, uh, for, for certainly for me. So she she gets it. And uh, that's not a natural state for me. It's a me performance either. state. Uh, so for me, uh, uh, it's just performing. For sure. So I've built teams at several companies all over the world, globally. I pride myself on my very first firm that I built myself, which was in 2002. We grew it to 22 global locations. And within those locations, I had a 1% turnover. You have built remarkable teams that have been led to so many championships year after year. What's your secret? Well, a part of it is the story I started sharing. Uh, we were the first varsity in the South, so we got sort of a, a leg up in recruiting early. And if you've got a good team uh, with quality players, you're going to attract other quality players because there's no uh, mystery to success in collegiate athletics. It's based on how effectively you recruit. Uh, so right out of the gate, we were recruiting well because we were the first. And then obviously, this is a very attractive campus to recruit too. I mean, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is a paradise. It's a paradise on this earth. The campus is beautiful. It's got a great balance of academics, uh, athletics, and social life. Uh, it's located in an incredible part of the country. I think the most recent you know, ranking of best places to live in the United States, I think the triangle is number three. Yes. That's not, that's not a bad thing to sort of promote. Uh, so we've got all these different uh, things that put us in a wonderful uh, position to recruit. Uh, and then the kids that come through here, because I do respect them and treat them well, uh, they tell these recruits uh, that this is a wonderful place to go to school. So when all these different pieces add up, it's just put us in a position to recruit great players. And when you have this opportunity to have a pipeline of extraordinary athletes, one after another, that puts you in the position we're in of being so effective uh, at competing against even uh, top rivals. Amazing. I read that some of your coaching philosophies map back to the legendary Dean Smith. We talked about this previously. Tell me about your relationship with him and what you learned from him. Well, he was just a wonderful man. And I, and I did learn so many things from him. And it's interesting. I'm going to share with you the sort of coaching elements I learned from him. But then I'm going to tell you uh, what made all the difference in addition to that. And uh, the competitive cauldron <clears throat> is something we're uh, world famous for. In fact, uh, yesterday I was on a, a call with British television and the person they had on the call with me is a former player of mine by the name of Lucy Bronze, who plays for Manchester City, who plays on the English full national team, who this past year was voted the best player in the world. So wow. English television is, you know, bringing me on uh, with Lucy and we're having a conversation actually very similar uh, to what you and I are doing, Stephanie. And it was just great to catch up with her. And so uh, we're in this position where uh, 
We're attracting these incredible players, you know, like Lucy Bronze. And so that puts us in this sort of thin air, this rare air of just, you know, year after year after year, bringing in these great kids. And here's the thing that really excited Lucy Bronze about coming to the University of North Carolina. She's been a competitive player her whole life, but she's never been embraced for it. And what was interesting about me and uh, watching Dean Smith work, when he invited me and my coaching staff uh, to watch him run a basketball practice, it was so incredibly organized. I was overwhelmed with his organizational capacity, but also with basically the data that they collected in the training session. So we came in and we all had to sit in a certain place. Uh, me and my staff, we sat in a certain part of uh, the Smith Center. And then we would have this manager come up to us, a manager that was uh, working for Coach Smith. And he would hand each of us a piece of paper with that day's basically practice schedule on it. And we're looking at this and to the minute, they are going from you know a shooting exercise to a rebounding exercise, to a dribbling exercise, to a fitness session. And it was just going bang, 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 bang. And I'm looking at what's happening on the floor and all of a sudden it's to the minute. I'm watching this, I'm thinking this is extraordinary. There's no way I've run a practice with this sort of organizational structure where to the minute, because basically a noise goes off when they have to change. And so it's all run by the head manager sitting with us at the scores table with a clock, you know, basically saying when each part of each session ends. And then even the water break is choreographed, it's time. And you take your quick sip of water and then you rush back to Coach Smith or Coach Guthridge or one of his staff members and you continue training. But the thing that really intrigued me is these assistant managers underneath each basket. And they've got clipboards and they're recording every time a guy hit or missed a shot, a three-point shot or a foul shot. Every time a guy, you know, uh, rebounded effectively or didn't, every 3v3, 4v4, 5v5 game, they are collecting data the whole practice. At the end of practice, you see Dean bring the boys in together. You see all the assistant managers sprint to the scores table. The head manager is now compiling that day's practice data. And it's extraordinary what they're doing. They are basically adding up all that practice data and they are ranking that day's practice performance. So by the time Dean is finished addressing the troops, the head manager has already filled out the rankings from one to 12 or one to 15 based on practice performance. And obviously there was a, you know, a plus or minus factor for how more important this was than that. So it's all, there's an algorithm and all of a sudden he turns around, the head manager hands him the ranking and he starts reading off the names. First five guys, they get to shower immediately. The next five guys are lined up and they're doing suicides. The last five guys, I assume, are doing suicides until the end of recorded time. And I was thinking, this is unbelievable. The organization of practice, the accountability, that everything counted in practice, and then obviously the information they got at the end of practice. They had a sense of exactly where they were in practice. And so this would motivate them for every practice, knowing they were being assessed in absolutely everything. We stole it, we soccerized it, we took it to a different level, and then we dubbed this thing the competitive cauldron. So if you came down to our practice complex, you would see a bulletin board, you would see 28 different competitive categories, and if we have a 30-player roster that year, 26 players are field players, four are goalkeepers, we have a ranking from 1 to 26 for every field player in all 28 different categories. The goalkeeper categories are different. The goalkeepers are ranked one through four in their categories, and it's a matter of public record. So the day after every practice on the bulletin board is basically the cauldron, and they all check it. 
They all go walking by, and even the ones that pretend like, you know, I'm cool, you know, I don't have to check this. The competitive kids are looking at it. They want to make sure we scored them properly because they remember how many goals they scored in the previous game. They remember how many 77 games they won. They remember the headers they won. They remember the, they, they remember everything, and they're just making sure we got it right. But they're also seeing where they're ranked. I love this. I love the immediacy of the feedback. I love the accountability. I love the fact that I don't have to be looking at them for them to feel the pressure of performance. Because obviously, in you know the old days, the direction the coach was looking in, everyone's on fire in that direction. And all the guys training behind the coach, they're taking some time off. That doesn't happen in a Dean Smith practice. And because of Dean Smith, that doesn't happen in one of our practices either. So that, that was the competitive cauldron. And all of the many things that I think distinguish us and help our kids get to gold medals in the Olympics and world championships, I think this is an absolutely critical element. What did Dean mean to you personally? Well, then, thank you for that question, because you're adding the additional pieces that are so critical. <clears throat> what I loved about him is the way he treated me. I uh, was nothing. I am nothing. I mean, everything at UNC is basketball and football. We get it, and we understand it. They are the lifeblood of an athletic department. If you don't have successful football and basketball teams, the rest of us starve to death. So we understand what our status is. We have no illusions or delusions. And yet Dean Smith, because he was such an extraordinary man and human being, treated me with huge respect. One year we're hiring a football coach and there's a press conference and they're interviewing Dean Smith about this uh, football coaching hire uh, that they're trying to bring into Chapel Hill. And here's the question they asked him. They said, well, coach, uh, isn't it going to be difficult to hire an elite football coach at a basketball school? And Dean Smith's answer is so good, it's used today in our recruiting. And he said, no, 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 no. We're not a basketball school. We are a women's soccer school. And all of a sudden, that was, you know, national headlines across the country. We recruit the country. And that statement from Dean Smith was in every sports section across the country. And that was Dean Smith basically throwing me a bone but it was a big bone. It was a big recruiting bone. And that's the sort of thing he did for me all the time. When he would see me in a restaurant with a recruit and a recruit's family, he would walk over to the table and say, you know, coach, uh, who is this uh, wonderful family here? And I would say, well, you know, uh, coach, this is so-and-so. This is the, you know, the top goalkeeper from New England. She's visiting the University of North Carolina. And then he would, you know, start saying things about, well, you know, uh, I just want uh, you people to know that, uh, you know, Anson is one of my favorite people at the university. He's really positive. He's, you know, he's full of energy. And, and then he would say, and by the way, if you decide to come here, please let me know. And I will seat you right behind my bench uh, in our first ACC game. So all of a sudden, the dad, of course, who knows of course. this, <laughs> the dad is thinking, are you kidding me? So, you know, I'll be sitting right behind the bench you know, uh, with my daughter. And, and, and it was just, you know, that the sort of things that he would do telling these kids, uh, you know, that, you know, they could sit right behind the bench during the first game or something. And that's, that was who he was. And then of course you start to learn more about his culture. You learn that he treated his lowliest manager with the same respect that he treated Michael Jordan with. Yes. And so there, there wasn't a hierarchy in his, I guess, his culture. It was, we're all human beings. Uh, we're all going to be treated with huge respect. And so he taught all of us how to, how to lead. And uh, leadership is winning everyone's trust. And you win trust in direct proportion to the respect that you extend to the people uh, that are working for you and with you. 
And uh, just watching him uh, work was just uh, incredible for me. And then one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, because of how close I was to Coach Smith, uh, uh, when he died, uh, the basketball culture invited me in because they celebrated uh, uh, his memorial service at a small church. And there were thousands of people that wanted to be there. And uh, they weren't invited in. They only had a certain number. And I'm sitting in one of the front pews with, you know, the all-time greats, the, the Michael Jordans, uh, you know, all of the, the great basketball players, the great coaches. And uh, that's because he fully embraced me within his culture. And um, I remember one year, there was this description of me when I was uh, colliding with one of uh, the people here at UNC that was trying to explain to me my status in the athletic department. And this wasn't a very positive human being. And the way he described me, and it was a great description, it was so good I've never forgotten, says, you know, Anson, if we took a pair of binoculars and looked straight down with them, we might see the top of your head. So this was, you know, another person's opinion uh, of, you know, our status within the university. And yet Dean Smith was the exact opposite. So which sort of leader do I want to emulate? This powerful, you know, mongrel that sits on top and relishes his power and the insulting things he can say for the people beneath him? No, that's not Dean Smith. Dean Smith is the opposite. He elevates all of us, even the ones. And by the way, one of my favorite definitions of class, class is the way you treat someone when they can do absolutely nothing for you. Absolutely. No agenda. Yeah, that is Dean Smith. I could do nothing for him, and he treated me like a king. So I know how I, I've, I've done a ton of research. I've watched a ton of videos. I've seen the girls talk about you. I've seen other coaches talk about you. You know, I've chatted with Eric about you. Like, we've had conversations. You are probably one of the most humble people that I know. You never, ever, ever give yourself credit. You always give credit to your team and for the assistant coaches and the GMs and all of that. I want to be really clear about something. You have a 90 plus winning percentage in sports. That just doesn't exist. No matter what, it doesn't exist. You're like Bigfoot. Okay. <laughs> so, so what do you, and I, I want to talk about you and I know this is uncomfortable for you. And I know you hate it and I know you don't like it, but I'm going to hold you to this. I know Melissa is a huge part of this. I know she's massive. Okay. But what do you attribute this success, this drive this level of engagement and this level of connection to your community and to your team? Well, one thing I think can benefit all of us in these kinds of positions is to actually always be trying to get better. Uh, one of the cliches within my program is live on a never ending ascension. And um, I didn't pull this from Aristotle or the pre-Socratics uh, or Nietzsche. Uh, this is from Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, this is from that cartoon where Love that. Calvin is this, you know, basically this crazy kid and his alter ego is Hobbes, who's a brilliant philosopher, by the way. And uh, they're in this wagon together and uh, they're descending down the side of the hill and they're having a conversation about how basically Calvin wants to lead his life. Uh, and he's talking, uh, you know, while this, this wagon is careening off the edge of a cliff, descending into an abyss about how he only wants to experience peaks. He wants his life to be a never ending ascension while he is being thrown into the abyss. And I absolutely love it. 
because despite what's happening around him, or he's actually descending into an abyss, he's this eternal optimist, and all he wants to experience is peaks, and he just wants to, you know, live on a never-ending ascension. This is so much like life, because life is not easy, and, uh, you know, climbing these things in life are incredibly difficult, but what I love about uh, Calvin is this extraordinary optimism he has, but also this thing he wants to do. He wants, and I, I think this is the perfect phrase, I want to live on a never-ending ascension. And I know there's only one way for me to do that. I want to get better every year and everything. And obviously you get older, it's sort of hard to keep getting better in everything because your body's falling apart. But uh, that's always been my philosophy. And that's the philosophy we try to share with all of our kids. So for me personally, if you came and looked at my nightstand, uh, you'd see 10 different books on it. I am rotating through 10 books. And these aren't, you know, books about sport. Uh, usually in the 10, there's only one or maximum two that are about sport. Uh, you know, these are Winston Churchill uh, biographies. These are, you know, books that have excited me uh, from something I either heard on a news show or in a podcast. Uh, uh, I'm just reading and reading and reading. I'm trying to become better at everything I'm doing. Uh, so for me, uh, I think what's absolutely critical is to try to get better in everything I'm doing every year. And for that to happen, I have to evolve. And a part of the evolution is, you know, learning more about these kids uh, that I'm coaching, uh, staying connected with them, uh, being a part of their lives, but also trying to inspire them. And so much of my inspiration comes from what I'm reading. Uh, in fact, if there's another massive pillar right next to the competitive cauldron, it came right out of reading. I get the New York Times a Sunday a newspaper and I read the whole thing. I go right through it. I don't throw it away. My wife hates it. I mean, at times when I'm falling way behind, there's a stack of newspapers on my dining room table, which she also hates. And I keep telling her, I'll, I'll be getting to it. And she's, you know, she's not allowed to throw anything away. I'm going to look through all of it. And, uh, but all these things contribute. And this thing really contributed because uh, like uh, you, Stephanie, I'm sure, but also most of us uh, that want to try to get better at everything, I read business books. If there's a business bestseller out there, I will grab it. I will read it. I will try to take something from it. I will try to take what I get from it, <clears throat> inject it into my culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for years, uh, because every great business book I've read talks about culture, I wanted to have a great culture. So I had all these, I'll be honest with you, relatively insipid statements about my culture. And looking back, they were insipid, like, you know, well, we work hard. Well, that's not inspiring to have a statement like that. And I had all these different mission statements for, you know, years about who we were, but nothing really seemed to work. And all of a sudden I'm reading in the New York Times magazine. And why am I reading this in the New York Times magazine? Because it was on a stack on the dining room table that my wife wasn't allowed to throw away. So finally I got to this piece and it wasn't a sports piece. It was about this woman that was studying Russian literature at Columbia. And when she was admitted to Columbia, they had just hired a Russian exile poet by the name of Joseph Brodsky. So Brodsky comes into Columbia, and this woman is working on her PhD in Russian literature. And Brodsky gets all of his PhD candidates together in a room, and he says, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's you know, a pleasure to be here at Columbia. And uh, I insist that all of you memorize all of this Russian literature and Russian poetry and he extends to them an outline of all the things they're expected to memorize. This woman is shocked. Following the meeting in sort of a cabal, they all get together and said, oh my gosh, 
I don't think Professor Brodsky understands where he is. He's at Columbia. This is one of the world's great institutions. And if he thinks that he's going to get us to basically memorize poetry and literature like an elementary school student in the United States, he's wrong. We are at Columbia. Uh, we are the best of the best. And we want him to teach us something about Russian literature. Uh, and it's certainly not going to be through memorization. So they go storming back into his office and to make a long story short, he says, well, if you guys don't memorize this, none of you guys get your PhDs. And they all got to work. And all of a sudden, she is confessing in this piece in the New York Times Magazine. This was transformative for her and her colleagues. All of a sudden, for the first time in her life, she had a cerebral sense of what it was like to live, work, and die in Russia. And then all of a sudden, in her conversations with her colleagues, the stuff she had memorized and they had memorized became a part of their conversations. It became a part of her cerebral fabric. Basically, she owned these things in a very positive way. And I was thinking to myself, well, okay, nothing I have done in this culture project has ever worked. I've pretended to have this great culture by making ridiculous statements that weren't necessarily true. But that's what the business books were telling me. And nothing seemed to work. And so here's what we did. We took all these statements that I thought were critical for my culture. And now we basically attached a motivational quote to them that every kid had to memorize. And then every kid had to judge each other against them in our culture. So all of a sudden the freshmen mm -hmm. are coming in and they have three different quotes to memorize. One of the quotes is one of my favorites because I hate whiners. I hate people that whine. There's nothing worse than whining. In fact, when all of my kids reached the age of reason, I had this big dinner meeting at my house. I said, listen, uh, kids, I don't care if you guys are serial killers or arsonists, but the one thing I will not tolerate is whining. The one thing I, I, will, love never, it. Amazing. I will never embrace is whining. So basically, the first quote that every incoming freshman has to memorize before they arrive at the University of North Carolina is a George Bernard Shaw quote about being a force of fortune instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. So basically, we just don't embrace whining. And then one of my also absolute favorites, and uh, because I have not memorized this, and I apologize to all of my kids that are listening to this, this is also my favorite. My wife taught at Duke for 33 years, and so uh, I was a fan of Reynolds Price, who also taught at Duke, uh, like my wife forever, and I love Reynolds Price. And he was really irritated with the culture at Duke during a stretch when apparently all the Duke students were getting drunk every night, and it was like a you know, it was like a, a, an orgy somewhere on campus every night. And he didn't really feel like this was conducive to the education he felt was critical for a Duke student. And he sent this to the whole student population. I love this. And this is what all of our incoming freshmen memorized, by the way. And here it is. This is Reynolds Price. College is about books. And by the word books, the proposition means this. College is about the best available tools books, computers, lab equipment, for broadening your mastery of one or more important subjects that will go on deepening your understanding of the world, yourself, and the people around you. This will almost certainly be the last time in your life when other people bear the expense of awarding you four years 
of financially unburdened time. If you use the years primarily for mastering the skills of social life, as though those skills shouldn't already have been acquired by the end of middle school, or if you use these years for testing the degree to which your vulnerable brain and body can bear the strains of the alcoholism with which a number of students depart campus, or the sexual excess that can seem so rewarding, name only two of the lurking maelstroms, then you may ultimately leave this vast table of nutriment as the one more prematurely burned out case. Every freshman has to memorize this coming in. And isn't that a wonderful description of the way you can actually destroy the value of the educational institution you're entering? I mean, I think nothing else needs to be said. I know. I mean, is this extraordinary or what? That should be on every single, as you're signing, you should sign and then flip to the next page and it's that and then sign and then to the, that is extraordinary. I agree. And so they're memorizing this quote about never whining and we don't put up with whining. They're memorizing this quote about how they should conduct their undergraduate experience. And then yes, the insipid we work hard quote is the third thing, or actually uh, it's the fourth thing they memorize. They're memorizing that as sophomores. Uh, but the freshmen are now memorizing this Stephen Covey quote. You have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things because the temptations in college are overwhelming. So what are your priorities? Uh, and the way to do that is to have a bigger yes burning inside. So, uh, And that's just three of the 13 the kids are memorizing by the time they graduate. And every kid on the roster is evaluating them against it because what's kind of cool is, and you know this, I mean, once you enter the, you know, the real world, you don't get to have a, a peer group assess your, your character. No. And so this is like a free insight into who you are, according to everyone that sees you every day. It's your best and at your worst. And so here's your shot at correcting this before you enter the real, real world, because I'll tell you this, if you end up leading an extraordinary life, it's because you have extraordinary character. And one of the reasons your life is extraordinary is not because your character is extraordinary, but because your character has attracted other people of extraordinary character that now are a part of your life. Because obviously one of the most critical decisions you have to make is who you're gonna marry. And holy cow, is that gonna determine so many positive or potentially negative things about what's gonna happen in your life. And so do you want to attract the most extraordinary person that's out there? Well, there's only one way to do that. That's to make sure that you are, have this extraordinary character and can attract that person. And then because, you know, life is difficult, you guys are going to have to manage all kinds of issues. What's going to help you manage them? What's going to help you manage them is if you have great character and your partner does as well. And then obviously what you're hoping is to raise a family with similar character as well. So I got this out of the New York Times Magazine. I got this out of a, you know, a woman studying Russian literature at Columbia who told a story that all of a sudden clicked for me because I was you know, very self-critical of the culture I was trying to establish because right. I'm looking at it and I'm honest with myself, this isn't working. I haven't inspired a kid by saying, you know, well, we work hard. That has inspired a soul. But these other things, I think, are inspirational. And, you know, like you, Stephanie, I can tell just from chatting with you, uh, words matter. Language matters. And for me, words inspire me. And so I am trying to make sure that all of this, I guess, 
these motivational words uh, are a part of uh, our cerebral, moral, uh, and emotional fabric. And how do you get it in there? You memorize it. I am so blessed and so privileged to actually be able to interview incredible leaders like yourself. Um, I, I really, it's just the best job ever being able to do this and actually develop leaders and and actually give them, like you said, just that little tweak or that little pivot or that little, you know, that one thing that matters. I have to tell you, I literally have 200 more questions for you because one thing leads to another that leads to another. And so before we get to Kelly Muldoon, because I want to talk about that, but before we talk about Kelly, I want to talk about the letters to the seniors, because that video is what I was like, I don't care what anybody has to do. I need Anson. Every single thing that you were saying, how they were talking about you, how you made them feel your exhaustion and exertion in doing this. And now knowing that you're an introvert, what this took to kind of sit back and really settle with yourself. Talk to me about the senior letters. Tell our audience what they are and, and why you do them. Oh, well, first of all, thank you. And, and let me give you a little background on this because uh, this, again, uh, none of this is born in a vacuum. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we're a, everyone in our church teaches. You're either teaching gospel doctrine or you're teaching youth or you're uh, speaking in church. We have a lay ministry, so uh, uh, we don't have a paid priesthood that basically runs uh, the church. It's all of us uh, that are have work-a-day lives, and then we're asked to get up and speak. And when you're speaking, you're basically teaching. So what they do to help you become a good teacher is they train you in how to become basically a great teacher. The first principle of teaching in our church is to love those you teach. And that gets to the core of what I think is so critical for all the leaders. If you want to be an extraordinary leader, you've got to love the people you're leading. Uh, and they have to feel it. They have to feel it in the trust you extend to them. Like I felt it uh, when Dean Smith, you know, treated me, you know, again, like a king. And there are other people that, uh, you know, uh, if they had binoculars and looked straight down, they might see the top of my head. And so uh, who am I going to respond to as a leader? This, you know, guy that's trying to intimidate me by letting him, me know, you know, where I stand in the, the world of, you know, collegiate athletics? No. What inspired me is a man who elevated me and treated me well and basically invested in me. And so what these senior letters are is it's... We extend it before a national championship game, and I don't write them early. I write them in the emotional cauldron of never seeing these kids again, but also in the emotional cauldron of their final gesture on the field for us. And what I'm talking about is what, is what makes them extraordinary, not as soccer players, but as human beings. And then all of a sudden, uh, there's a book written by uh, uh, Tim Carruthers. The title of his book, I really appreciate. The title of his book is The Man Watching. So what he took as the title for his book is exactly that uh, talk I gave for what drives winning. I am letting them know that I've been watching them for the entire three and a half years they spent with me. And here is what I absolutely love about every one of them. And uh, I scribble it, and sometimes the night before a championship game, I'm up, you know, most of the night scribbling out these notes and then having someone photocopy them because I'm going to hand them the, the handwritten note. And then in the pregame before the, uh, the championship game the next day, I'm going to read every note to every girl in the room because I want them to play for something greater than themselves. I want them to play 
for the senior class that we're about to lose. Because I want them to basically tap into their uh, an emotional cauldron to make sure that uh, they take every physical risk to make sure the senior goes out a winner. I want them to tap into everything that's important in the lives of these seniors and draw on that to motivate them to get the, to the highest possible level. For me, the, the senior letters are basically a thank you for who they are. And I think when they get the letters, uh, what I think surprises them on occasion is how much I've, I've noticed. And I try to notice everything. I try to notice every single extraordinary quality they have as human beings. And I'm gonna share that with the entire team. Uh, but I'm also gonna thank them for coming to play for me, coming to play for uh, their teammates, coming to play for the University of North Carolina. It's basically a thank you note uh, that's laced with every positive quality they've shown to me over the course of the previous three and a half years. And so uh, there are a combination of factors here. It's thanking that extraordinary senior, but it's also letting everyone in the room know that uh, this is what I'm doing with them. Because the man watching is a Rilke poem. And if you read that poem, it's an absolutely extraordinary poem about basically how tough life is. And uh, the poem is, I mean, if anyone's listening to this, just grab uh, the man watching by Rilke and read it. For me, it's like reading scripture. Every time I reread it, another insight comes out and another, I guess, affirmation of something that, that's important to me uh, resurfaces because I've forgotten it or I've ignored it. And so for me, the senior letters uh, are everything. And then I'm connected with them for the rest of their lives because here's what they know. They know I cared about them. They know uh, they've got peace in my heart. And they know that uh, for the rest of their lives, uh, we are going to stay connected. And so uh, for me, uh, that's a very, very important piece. So you're not easy. You're tough. <laughs> you're, you're tough. Nobody goes, oh, yeah, it was a breeze. That doesn't happen. Tell me some of the messages that you get. These girls are natural leaders. Okay, they're athletes. They're on the field. Okay, they're listening. They're trying to get better. But their capacity and their perspective on the field is so much different than it is in five years or in 10 years. Talk to me about some of the letters that you get, the emails that you get, the phone calls that you get that five or 10 years later after they've left you. Well, one of my favorites actually occurred, I think uh, maybe two, two and a half years ago. And uh, obviously I stay connected with all of my kids that are playing at a pro level. Uh, when they score a goal or play well or win a championship or like with Lucy Bronze yesterday, you know, getting the best player in the world award. Are you kidding me? I'm celebrating with her. I stay connected with her. So uh, this kid calls me up and she's struggling. She's struggling with her coach. She's struggling to get playing time. And I will be a sounding board. You know, I will not sit in judgment of them. Uh, they will always get my support. I also don't throw the coach under the bus uh, because this kid has to play for this coach. So I will never side with this player against the coach. They will know I care about them, but I'm not going to say, well, ignore everything that coach is saying. He's absolutely wrong. No, I will never say that because the girl has to play for this coach. So I'm also going to you know, say, well, if the coach said this, this is what he means by that. So now I'm also supporting and defending the coach because she has to learn to play for this coach. Right. He's got her contract. That's where she has to play. So anyway, I'm talking to this kid and I can tell how frustrated she is. 
And then she pays me this wonderful backhanded compliment. She says, you know, Anson, when I played for you, you know, I thought there was, there was no one in the world I couldn't play for, implying that you were so hard to play for. I mean, every time I made a mistake, you were all over me. I didn't think there was another guy out there I could play for uh, that would be as hard on me as you were. And then she says, but through your criticism, I could feel your love. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh. That went right to the middle of my heart uh, because she's right. I do care about her. And yep, I would let her know as often as I could that I did care about her, that she was going to be all right, that she was going to improve, that we were going to solve this issue. I mean, so I'm the eternal optimist. And so within our culture, she knew that I absolutely cared about her, even though this wasn't good enough. That's not good enough. There's another level of this. There's more effort here. I mean, so, I mean, and this is what she's hearing for three and a half years. And then, of course, if she's lucky enough to play for a national championship, she gets this letter, and nothing in that letter is about what she didn't achieve. Everything in that letter is how extraordinary she is. But I loved that conversation with her. I left that, you know, conversation just... Ignited. Yeah, just ignited, because it really made me feel good. So I think those are the sorts of uh, emails and, and phone calls that uh, obviously make all the difference for any of us in a leadership position, that you impacted someone in a positive way yeah. and that they could tell you cared about them. Nobody cares about what you have to say until they know that you actually truly care about them as a mm -hmm. person. And I think that you are the absolute heart and epitome of that. And that's what the girls say about you. Tell me about Kelly Muldoon and the story and what it meant to you. Yeah, so Kelly uh, was this kid that uh, had obviously uh, terminal cancer. And um, her dream as a kid was to come uh, play for me at the University of North Carolina. And she's actually, we're over at Duke uh, playing in the Duke tournament. So when we play in the Duke tournament, we go over to Duke twice. We don't play Duke in this tournament. We play the two teams they bring in. Uh, we play one of the teams on Friday and the other team on, on Sunday. And all of a sudden, uh, this guy was outside the locker room that we were using uh, at Duke for our pregame about to play this team. Uh, and he says, you know, coach, uh, this is my daughter. She was in a wheelchair. She had a bandana around her head, obviously covering up for the fact she had lost all of her hair. And we're over here getting uh, cancer treatments at Duke Hospital. And it was my daughter's dream to play for you. Do you mind, uh, you know, just signing an autograph for my daughter or at least talking to her? And I said, hey, I'll do better than that. Why don't you bring her into the pregame? And all of a sudden, he couldn't believe it. So he pushes her in the wheelchair into the locker room before the game. And I introduced uh, the team to Kelly Muldoon, that she was here uh, getting cancer treatment at Duke Hospital, and it was her dream to be a Tar Heel. So by George, she's a Tar Heel. So she was in that locker room with us. And, and all of a sudden, uh, the whole team decided to dedicate that season to Kelly Muldoon. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, every now and again, when she's up there for cancer treatments uh, at Duke Hospital, she would zip over to UNC. And if we had a game, we'd bring her into the locker room. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, some of the leadership started having all the kids wrap tape around their wrists and uh, write Kelly Muldoon or this is for you, Kelly. And all of a sudden, before every game, that was our ritual. And all of a sudden, uh, this team uh, ignited and we started to, you know, win some really good games against good teams. And we're, we go through the ACC tournament, we're doing well. And I think that team may have been ACC champions. And all of a sudden, we're going through the NCAA tournament. And before every game, it's we're playing for Kelly, we're playing for Kelly. 
And then all of a sudden, uh, we're at the national championship game, and it's right over here in Cary at uh, Wake Med Park. And uh, who's sitting right behind us in the stands at uh, Wake Med Park? It's Kelly Muldoon and her family. And we are clearly playing for Kelly. And the girls are showing Kelly, you know, her name is on their wrists. And all of a sudden, uh, we win the national championship right in front of Kelly. And we had her family. We got permission to have her wheel down on the field. Uh, to have the national championship celebration with Kelly in the middle of the entire team. And it was just absolutely glorious. And then uh, tragically, uh, uh, two months later, uh, uh, Kelly died. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, what we decided to do is we decided to name the top award at our banquet. And the top award at our banquet is not, uh, you know, the MVP. It's uh, basically the Kelly Muldoon Award for Character. And what it is, is the team's evaluation of the 13 core values of everyone on the team. We have a spring award winner, we have a fall award winner, and we honor those two extraordinary women who are honored for their character. And what they get is the top award at our banquet, which again, the Kelly Muldoon Award for Character. Her dad comes every year uh, to talk about his daughter as uh, a reminder for what we're celebrating. We're celebrating her extraordinary life her uh, fight uh, against cancer. And uh, what we're celebrating as a team is basically doing something for things greater than yourselves. It's uh, we're honoring character, certainly, but we're also honoring uh, these extraordinary people that demonstrated uh, as she certainly did to all of us. And so uh, if any of us can commit ourselves to things bigger than ourselves, our lives have meaning. And so uh, for us, uh, uh, this has meaning. Other people have meaning, you know, people that suffer, uh, their lives have, have great meaning. And so for us, uh, this, is, this is our top award, the Kelly Muldoon Award for character. What an incredible, incredible story. I'm so glad that you were able to share that with our listeners. We're running out of time, but I wanted to talk to you about the person that you are. You're so holistic in every regard. There's empathy, there's compassion, there's strength, there's humility, there's leadership. I can go on and on and on for the people that are listening right now, the athletes that are listening, the girls that are dreaming to play for you, the ones that just want to get to, like you said, the beautiful paradise and actually really play for you, Anson. How do you become a standout? What gets you other than skills? How do you be looked upon as a standout? There are nine qualities that can take you to the promised land. And we talk about them in our player conferences. And these are choices you get to make when you wake up in the morning. Because the people that are extraordinary, actually, I think um, people will be shocked at how relatively ordinary so many of them are until they check these nine boxes. And if you wake up every morning and check these nine boxes, you're going someplace. And here they are. Self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief. In my sport, love of the ball. In my sport as well, love of playing the game, love of watching the game grit, coachability, and connection. Those are nine things that you can decide to do every single day when you wake up. And if you check all of those boxes, you're going someplace in my game. The ring that rules them all, and it's so interesting that you and I are talking about this right now, because uh, Lucy Bronze and I, the greatest player in the world, were talking about this yesterday. And the ring that rules them all is competitive fire and athletics, but not just in athletics. And it's sort of interesting, uh, Stephanie, and you will fully understand this, especially since you're brought in as a consultant for all of these extraordinary companies. You have to have this 
this competitive uh, makeup and it has to be embraced. And one of the tragedies in the way we raise our girls and young women is they're not put on pedestals for being competitive. A boy is put on the top of a tall pedestal if he's competitive as he can be. And a young girl and a young woman, for some reason, is excoriated for it. I have never understood that. So what we have to do within the cultures that we're leading is embrace the competitive women, protect them from the other people that are going to try to criticize them for this quality we admire men for. Because I'll tell you this, those nine qualities are critical. But the most critical is competitive fire. So one of my favorite lines in Mia Hamm's book, Go for Gold, when she was talking about coming to UNC, she could finally be the person that she was, which was a shark with blood in the water. And we need more cultures that embrace women that are competitive. It doesn't mean they're mean or nasty, although obviously what ends up happening if they are competitive, uh, the people will change the dialogue and pretend that the reason they're excoriated is because they're mean or nasty. They're not. They're competitive. There's a way to be extraordinarily competitive, but also compassionate, kind, you know, with deep character and caring. Those are not mutually exclusive quality. And yet, for some reason, if a woman is competitive, all of a sudden, how do people judge her? They call her arrogant or dismissive or this or that. And she's none of those things. She's just competitive. Can't you leave her alone, please? Can't we or, have or worse or develop it? Can't you develop or yes. it? Yes. Can't you embrace it and yes. highlight it and put her on the top of the pedestal uh, and let her know she's, uh, yeah, go for it, you know? Uh, and can't you appreciate this quality in them? Uh, because we certainly do here at UNC. So those are the nine things, but don't ever lose uh, your desire to beat everyone to death. Obviously, be a graceful winner at the end of it if you've won, and be a graceful loser at the end if you've lost. Uh, But please, don't stifle that part of your personality. So in closing, 1,043 NCAA wins, 21 national titles, and a 90.5% games won percentage. Did I get it right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You're uh, like, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, no, the, the championships is uh, uh, people make this mistake because it's it's hard to uh, organize. We actually have 22 national championships, but only 21 of them are NCAA championships because the first championship was an AIAW championship. Uh, so uh, that, was, that was basically a, a different organization. The old days, the... Uh, NCAA did not sponsor women's national championships. So the first one was uh, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And then in a hostile takeover, the NCAA basically decided to embrace every women's national championship that was out there. So the second one was uh, an NCAA championship. So it's 22 national championships and 21 NCAA championships. Got it. Thank you so much for letting us know. Again, you're the epitome of leader, grace, integrity, compassion, and empathy. And I am so honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, I've enjoyed it myself, Stephanie. Thank you. Absolutely.
Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.